Hello, Radioland Podcastville and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, Julia Claiborne Johnson visits us to talk about her new novel, Be Frank With Me. We have book recommendations from Lauren Weedman. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the former fiction editor of LARB. She is now a roving editor without portfolio or with every portfolio, however you want to look at it. Lori Weiner. Hello. Hi, Seth. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. And our co-host, he's the founding editor of LARP, the professor, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. The professor. I think we should go to the show. Julia Claiborne Johnson is living the dream. She published a first novel, and people are actually not ignoring it. The book is called Be Frank With Me, and it's a delight. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So briefly, because it's a novel that we I have no idea how many of our audience have read, in a paragraph, tell us the story. Okay, what happens is there is a novelist who is sort of a mashup of Harper Lee and Salinger and the Bonjour Tristesse woman, what was her name? Francois Sagan. She writes a novel at 19. It is a huge runaway bestseller. People still read it in high school 25 or 30 years later. So she can live off of that. But she gets tangled up in a Bernie Madoff-style Ponzi scheme, loses all her money, calls her editor she hasn't talked to in 25 years and says, I need to write another book fast. I can't be homeless. I have a son. Nobody knows anything about the son. He sends his own assistant, Alice, who he trusts very much, to be the assistant, and she's supposed to transcribe the manuscript. She never sees a page of it. She just is taking care of the son that nobody knows what to do with or where he came from, and they have all sorts of adventures. So, What is it about people like Salinger and Harper Lee that we find so fascinating? These people who burst onto the scene like supernovas and then vanish. Well, particularly with a novelist, I think, and I don't think I feel this way, but, you know, you've exposed your whole soul to the world, and then suddenly they're, I love you. I want to be your best friend. And then it's weird because you don't know those people at all. You haven't read their novels, so you don't mm. know what they're really like. And for particularly for somebody who was her age, which was 19 or 20, to be so caught up in that, you know, it's weird. So I think anybody that doesn't want attention from the world becomes alluring <laughs> right away. So particularly in a place like, because she lives in Hollywood, so particularly in a place like Hollywood. Now, the book is built in many ways around her nine-year-old son, Frank, hence mm-hmm. the title. And Frank is a very unusual kid. He's, he's fascinated by old Hollywood movies. He dresses in the style of many of these movies. He's he wears a dandy. spats sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's a little spectrum-y. Mm-hmm. And building a novel around a nine-year-old kid, an adult novel, because this mm-hmm. is not a YA book, no. it's very much an adult novel, around a nine-year-old kid seems like a very risky strategy. How did you approach writing this kid? We know it's interesting. In the beginning, it was not about him so much. It was called Einstein's Mom, because I was so fascinated with what it would be like to be a normal person who had a super genius and how weird that must be. But then Frank took over (laughs) because he is so delightful. (laughs) And you can see why he took over. And the other thing about somebody like him is he's like sort of was born at, you know, 56. 
And then in a, in a smoking jacket. Yes, exactly, with a martini glass in his hand. So he's sort of ageless in a weird way. So, and I would assume that you identify with Alice. I mean, she's mm-hmm. she's a great character because it's always fun to you know you're the character who comes into the strange situation, mm-hmm. have to figure it out. So we're with her, right? But um, you're not Mimi, right? I mean, not that you're I, anyone. We I should understand. say Alice is the emissary for the publisher, and Mimi, Mimi is... is the writer, right? Yes. Right. And um, one of my very close young person friends who's in her 20s. She's the daughter of one of my friends, and she lives out here. And she read it when it was just out. And she said, oh, she knows me very well. She said, Alice is nice to you and Mimi is mean you. And I said, yes, <laughs> you're the first one to... Because you know have you had that interior monologue where there's what you really want to say, but you know you can't say it because it will kill people. There it is. So well, that explains the success of the book. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> now were this the real world, Frank, the nine-year-old, would uh-huh. clearly have a whole raft of diagnoses, or and, he'd have a reality show. Yeah, or, <laughs> that's possible. And, and, and would be trailed by a phalanx of therapists, and mm-hmm. and that would be a big part of the story. And yet, you chose to not go that route at all. You refer to him being he's been seen by a psychologist, right. but it's not a significant part of the book. And how come you made that choice? Well, here's the thing: my daughter, when she was about 10. I have two children, a son and a daughter. And my daughter read To Kill a Mockingbird when she was 10. I had to get her a copy, which she promptly lost. So I got her another copy. And then the first one turned up. And I was like, oh, I'll read it at the same time. This will be such a sweet sharing thing, you know. And so I was reading it. And I was like, oh, Boo Radley must be on the autism spectrum. And it had never occurred to me when I read it the last time mm-hmm. for more than 40 years ago, because people didn't know then. Mm-hmm. And then I had this sort of like, come to Jesus moment where I was like, oh my God, that character has always been in fiction. People just didn't know who it was, Mm -hmm. what it was. And then my very next thought as a parent was, well, it's a lot easier to write that character than it is to raise him. So that's how it got started. But the reason I didn't want to label him is, for one thing, the historical that nobody was ever labeled before. And also, um, once you say this kid is Asperger or whatever his diagnosis would be, that's all you think about. You never experience him as an individual, which would have been a disservice because, you know, he is uh, quite individual. He's obsessed by the kind of things I would be obsessed by if I were his age and... Yeah, all, all the Holly- all that Hollywood. Yeah, the, yeah. the glamour stuff. Like that, the, that really truly was a golden age. Well, you know, it's interesting the way that sort of happened, too, is because I had two children. And when your kids are little, you either watch Disney films or 1930s comedies because you can't watch. Right. You can watch Preston Sturges. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of time with those. And my son would say, those guys really know how to dress. And I was like, yes, they do. So Uh, it was kind of for me, this book, all the things that were in my life sort of came together in a very lucky kind of way. Because I love the fact, that, which I've known for years, that uh, George Gershwin died in the hospital that's now the... The Scientology Yes. And, it's, and I was like, oh, my God, I can use this fact. I think about that every time Don't I you? go by it. Oh my yes, God, like, where, where did George die? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So let's go from Hollywood to 3,000 miles east to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you name-checked Harriet the Spy in the book, which mm-hmm. is in, in many ways the urtext of my entire writing oh, career. Me too. Oh, everybody. I didn't know that. That, that, that great <laughs> Louise Fitzhugh novel uh-huh. of a kid in Manhattan uh-huh. who spies on everyone she knows. I still eat knows. tomato sandwiches. And, and writes about it in a notebook, which uh-huh. was me at nine, actually, yeah. oh, and oh, and I and I would love for you to speak to that book's influence on you and on this book. Where well, you know, I think it's, it's very funny because when I was 
decided I was going to write this novel because it all occurred to me in the course of half a block, the how it's easier to write that character than to raise it. And I thought, oh, I could write that novel. I would like to read that novel. I guess I'll write it. So I had a training program where I read all the books I had read at 13. Also, I got a brand new spanking new copy of Harriet the Spy. You'll be happy to know, still available. And I read through all of those and tried to really sort of bring it all together. And like the mixed up files of Miss Bessie, oh, yeah. Frank Wheeler, the other most Fantastic. awesome whatever. So... It was funny, like my little course I gave myself and how, because I had a teacher when I was really young, like 21, named Richard Yates, who wrote uh, Revolutionary Road. Where where did you study with Richard Yates? At BU. I went to graduate school for one year. How was he as a teacher? I I love that book. It is a great book. He was a very unhappy man, but, you know, he was delightful to us. and And I... When he taught me, he was, I thought he was well into his 70s. And we took him we, to raise. We, like, took him out to eat because he lived in this little apartment. You know, we'd hang out with him all the time because he was very lonely. Well, so then um, I stumbled across a biography of him. So I read it. And we're all in it, like, because he had been in this terrible downward slide. Oh, wow. And then he had six months of happiness when he was with us. I mean, I don't know how wow. happy it was. And then he went the rest of the way down. But the thing that killed me about it was that... Um, he was 50 when oh. he was teaching us, and I thought he was like 75. Because oh, when you live on cigarettes and whiskey, yeah. Yeah. it doesn't do a lot for your color. Yeah. So I'm but, actually 17. <laughs> <laughs> but what I was going to tell you is when I was reading this biography, when he was 14, he decided he was going to be a novelist. So he typed all of The Great Gatsby just to internalize how a book is put together. And I was like, that is such a good idea. Hunter Thompson claims to have done that. And I wonder if it's a lie. And he heard that about Richard Yates. Oh, I don't know. Because he doesn't seem very, like he would love to It doesn't seem Gatsby, like something he would do. Maybe, but, but like Orson Welles apparently watched Stagecoach 40 times before he directed Citizen Kane. Like there are just some things that are your guiding lights. Oh, right, for, you yeah. Know, and you know what? I read that Maxwell Perkins biography that they've mm-hmm. made yeah, a this, movie. Yeah, the Scott Berg biography. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, that was part of my education program. And he... Um, told Fitzgerald he had all the backstory in one chunk and he said you need to break it into three parts and it was and then I read that again I was like oh my god that was such a brilliant idea it would have been like hard to digest in one chunk so it was stuff like that that I did My name is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. Stay tuned. The fabulous Lauren Weedman, who was in here recently talking about her collection of personal essays called Miss Fortune, has been kind enough to come back and recommend a book. Lauren, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You look so pretty today. I feel pretty today. It really is an inside job, isn't it? It's a much better Gross. outfit, too. Yeah. It's a way better outfit. Than that thing you wore last time. Yeah. Schmata. Well, I had been sick, so I've been ill. I just gotten out of the hospital. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, so Lauren, what, what should we read? Well, I'm what I'm reading right now, and I did have, as I was reading it, I was like, I'm going to walk around doing that thing where I'm like, we have to read this. this is very timely. You have to read this. Carl Jung, Jung. Carl Jung's um, The Undiscovered Self, which I used to have a copy of, and I just had it just to have it on the bookshelf. And then I, you know, lost it or whatever, gave it away. And then now I just bought a new copy. And the first chapter, I got out a highlighter 
because I felt like I needed to make sure that I got, I really have to get these words into my head and mm -hmm. my soul. I must be changed by this chapter. And it was so much about how, he starts off just about looking at our, the idea of knowing yourself, uh, self-knowledge and, and the ego, all this stuff, the Jungian kind of stuff. But there's something about how we can all talk ourselves out of mattering in a second, right? If we're smart enough that we're like, why do we do anything really? And like, he had me there. You had me at what does it all matter? Because it, as I'm, I guess I'm sort of midlife crisis-y if I'm 47, almost 50, and where it really does feel like, I guess I could shave my legs, but who cares? It was also, was very much about the, it felt like the elections. I don't know what this mm -hmm. will be, this is, but it was, I'm too dumb to articulate it about what it, what I was getting from it, but it was highlight worthy. And it felt like completely um, about the whole Trump thing that was going on now, too, about masses and how why they are attracted to, you know, the demagogue kind of thing. Yeah, so. he's he's such a great writer. He right? really is. Yeah. He's got a real talent, that young. <laughs> yeah. But he's my go-to guy, I have to say, because I, I always want to, as a writer, too, I feel like he lets me look at life like it's this sort of event that's happening that's not me. I love the idea of looking at my life like it's not me. And, and he... Always helps with that. And I can pick up one of his books and just go to one page and get a little hit of it. Mm -hmm. It helps me start looking at getting some distance from what's going on with myself, and, you know, and it helps with my writing. And I do know what you mean about, about Trump. That is, that he, he's really good at talking about the two poles, which are, on one hand, it's narcissism, yep. and on the other hand, it's complete lack of self-knowledge, right? And those are, for him, they're kind of types, but they're collapsed in Trump. Yes, and, and there's something, too— in the first, it reminded me of the Trump thing in the first uh, chapter of the uh, of the young book about how the, a lot of times there's the lunacy of people, like there's actual people in our society that are mentally ill or perhaps just that are lunatics that are now seeping out. I don't, I'm not saying, I can't say it well enough. You have to read it. But basically yeah. just like the, the insanity that is starting to seep out and what we should be scared of, what we shouldn't be scared of and you know, and about looking at full people and, you know, full individuals, not just talking about how we don't know. Anytime you put people in a group, you just can't do that. About his whole thing is the individual, the individual, the individual. Yes. Actually, and that even us doing that with the Trump supporters is not so helpful in making some kind of change or figuring out what's going on. And I'm a big fan of not just going, oh, you're all mentally ill. Um, yep. But nobody else I know is because they are. I say all the time that I'm like, hey, I'm open to Trump supporters. I want to talk about, I want to have a little, I'm Nelson Mandela. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to know the enemy. I do, kind yeah, of. And people yeah. are like, oh, I don't deal with that. They're insane. You know, all they want is they're just dum-dums. I'm like, well, we're going to have to do something, right? It's interesting that, that he seems to do it by instinct. You know, like he, like Trump. people say, oh, he's yeah. studying. He's studying how Hitler did it. But he's not. He's just feeling what's getting him That's attention. That's why people like him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah he's and, a but, it, but, but it's a kind of genius, like... There's all kinds of geniuses that we're, you could be born with, and that's a really strange one to be born with. Yeah, just, you know, to be a to be a genius demagogue. I'm gonna read. It. I'm, I, it's, it's a little Jungian, though. I find it's a little heavy on the Jungian. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little Jungian. All right, the book is the Undiscovered Self. Lauren Weedman, author of Misfortune. Thanks for coming back to the show. Thanks for having me. I feel like I want to read the book like right now. <laughs> This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. We are talking to the author, Julia Johnson. Let's go back to that conversation. Before this, you were a journalist. You're a journalist. I was and, and like Laurie. Exactly. And um, 
through your years as a journalist, were you always a secret novelist? No, I never tried before, because here's the thing. I'll tell you. I had worked in the fiction department at Mademoiselle Magazine, and I was the person who read the 10,000 short story manuscripts that came through every year. Hmm. And it was a struggle to find 12 that were good. And because of that, I was like, it's really hard to write something good. Like, I, And that's just a short story, and I could only imagine how hard it would be to write a whole novel and that what a huge commitment of time it would be. And I didn't think there was anything in my soul at that juncture that the world needed to know about so desperately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but now that I'm elderly, I feel that I'm full of riches. <laughs> <laughs> and you are. And uh, and you spent some time working on this one. Yes. I, the first draft took me three years and then like the second draft took two. So, But I got an agent instantly. That's nice. On the first, it was. It's a very exciting story. We'll tell you. Yeah. I'll tell you the really Reader's Digest version. My favorite book is uh, called uh, Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. If you guys read that, mm-hmm. fabulous yep. book. And so that was one of the books when I was teaching myself that I studied. You know, like I wrote down everything that happened. Tell Ann Patchett it seems like totally stalkery. But anyway, so when I finished the first draft, I found the name of her agent and I wrote to her. And I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and she'd written me back already. She took me a week later, uh, Wednesday to Wednesday, and sent it out the next day. And she said, buckle your seatbelts, it's going to sell in a week. And I was like, oh! But then it didn't. (laughs) But that was okay because it was a first draft. So That is the best story I've ever heard of. And there's more details, but I left all the uh, the juicy parts out. (laughs) You and I were on a panel together at at the L.A. Times Festival of Books. Uh It was a very entertaining panel. We were hilarious together. uh, (laughs) All because of you. I thought so, too. You were were terrific. And one of the things we discussed on the panel was first sentences. And Mm -hmm. I think your book has a particularly good first sentence, and I would like you to read read it. it. Thank God you have one. I forgot to bring one with me. Because the station wagon blew up in the fire, Frank and I took the bus to the hospital. (laughs) That first sentence checks a lot of the boxes, (laughs) I think. That makes me happy to hear. At what point in the process did you have that sentence? It could not have been the first sentence It was not the first sentence. I wrote chapter eight before I wrote anything else, just so you know. Because it's the first night Alice spends alone with Frank, so that's hair-raising for her. And I read this book called... uh, Oh, my, oh, The Visit from the Goon Squad. Did you ever read that? Yeah, it's a terrific it book a by fan- Jennifer Egan. Yes, and it has a fantastic opening. I was like, that is a fantastic opening. And so then I had in my notebook, where, in my teaching myself how to write a novel, I'd written down like hundreds of first sentences of books. And so I studied all those. And then this is kind of a hilarious and doesn't have anything to do with anything part of it. But my husband used to write Beavis and Butthead, and they were always blowing stuff up. And I thought, if I blew something up in the first line. <laughs> Are you married to Mike Judge? No, I'm married to one of the four other writers. Oh, so, yeah. I always loved Mike Judge. He's and, a really nice guy. And I nice still guy. love him. I mean, oh, I don't know God. him. Yeah. Before, I, before we go into the Beavis and Butthead rabbit hole, <laughs> and far be it for me to stop that I conversational know, exactly. thrust. We've had a lot of novelists in here, and nobody has talked about, I created a novelist boot camp for myself and taught You're myself kidding. how to write really? a novel. Oh, my God. I, I, I would love for you to talk about that process. Oh, well, you know, I did go to creative writing graduate school at 21, and I had taken a lot of graduate classes as an undergraduate. Like, I had Peter Taylor and very various people like that. But I was too emotionally young for—it's like if you gave a five-year-old the keys to the Tesla— it probably isn't going to go well. And so I had to grow up a lot. But um, then when the time came, I had I did all that stuff. I read those books by editors. 
I wrote out everything that happened in books. I had um, a system, which I think is probably what screenwriters do, where you have post-it notes and you added it all up there. Every every character had a different color. This is I, you would so you would diagram. I would diagram. I wrote out the, yeah, and I knew what the I always knew what the last line was. And I'm re- I'm straying off of the topic of how I taught myself how to write, but it was you know what really helped me most of all was I knew what my end spot was. I always knew what the last line was from that very first day. And that was like a the North Star. I could guide myself toward that. Was when you were diagramming books, was there was there one that you felt broke down perfectly? Well, you know, Belcanto did for me, but it really it's not like my book at all. And I did, you know, you'll laugh at this one too. I have a neighbor who was a grade school teacher and she said, I want you to read this book because I think it's really good. And I was like, Okay, what's it called? And she said, Hunger Games. The first Hunger Games novel is fantastic. It's really well written. Every chapter is 10 pages long. You get to the end of a chapter and you think, oh, the next chapter is only 10 minutes. I'm just going to read the next chapter. And then it's 4 a.m. and mm-hmm. you're still awake. And I Google stalked the writer of that because I was fascinated with, uh, with her ability to both make a sentence, do a story and everything. And she had been a TV writer. So um, th- just for pacing, that was a really useful thing. I mean, it's tight. They're not going to teach it in college, probably, but I loved it. I thought it was a really good book. But remember, read, did you read Nancy Drew when you were a little oh, kid? Oh, yeah. I remember very short chapters, and the last sentence was always, you know, and she opened the creaking door very slowly, and then you'll never believe what she saw next. <laughs> every single chapter ends. And, you know, there's something, there is something to be learned from that. When I was young, when we were both living in Manhattan, um, one of my husband's friends wrote Nancy Drew books, and I was so stunned because it had never occurred to me that it Nancy Drew wasn't, you know, written by what Carolyn Keene wasn't right. a person. Right. <laughs> and that you got like a thousand dollars to write one of the books. So, so, yeah. so um, there's there's a fun fact about you that I'm gonna mention that is oh. gonna make Lori's head fly off her I shoulders. Can't wait. You live in a house that belonged to Oscar Hammerstein's son. Yes. Oh wow. yes, no because you. I'm writing a book about Oscar. <gasps> oh, you have to come visit yeah. me. There. I live on the block where there's a thing called the Los Angeles Tennis Club, and he was a and that's the that's the club that Groucho Marx wouldn't belong to if they'd have him as a member because <laughs> uh-huh. his son, uh, Arthur Marx, was on the Davis Cup team. And Oscar Hammerstein's son was a big tennis player, too. Billy he, or Jamie? I don't know. I don't oh, know which yeah. one. But he wanted to have a place where he could park his car when he went up to the tennis club. So he's like, I'll just buy my son a house. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, as one does. Well, actually, so. you know, he was a little bit tight, actually, with the, with the money for his kids. I mean, obviously, they... Their children's children never have to work, but uh-huh. but you know he he was careful about that kind of thing because he didn't he was very much aware of not wanting to create ent- entitled spoiled kids. Not that he succeeded, but he, uh-huh. he was he, he tried. Made an effort. He definitely tried. Yeah. So oh, that's interesting. so so. Where uh, is it? It's at, on Wilcox Avenue. Oh, you know okay. where the tennis mm-hmm. club is. It's in yeah, that block. Yeah, so yeah. Oh, so Julia, be frank with me. It's a very singular book. What are you What are you planning to do next? I have two very firm ideas. Right. I started working on one today because wow. I'm back. I've been on many travels, and I just got back over the weekend. But I'm not going to talk to you about them. But okay, sure but would you say that it's a similar genre? Maybe. I don't know. It's not about a kid. Uh-huh. But, you know, I feel like this is a question like when you ask somebody who's 32, oh, so when are you going to have a baby? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> when are you going to get married? I hope I do. <laughs> you know. It's beyond yeah. my control, but I'm going to do my best. So, great. Are you a fan of a Wes Anderson? 
I love Wes Anderson. Fantastic Mr. Fox, only the best movie ever made. Okay, good. Uh, you know, I didn't see that, but this book, Be Frank With Me, does have a distinct Wes Anderson yeah. Uh, yeah. vibe to it. In the most charming way. Yeah. Like just, you know, you can create a universe that's so has so many distinct characteristics, and yet it's a, it's a little bit more benign than the actual universe. You know, mm -hmm. like you feel really safe, mm -hmm. kind of. It's just so much fun. And oh, good. It's Thank very, you. It's very delightful. Yeah, I like books with joy. All right. Yeah. The book is uh, Be Frank With Me, Julia Claiborne Johnson. Thanks for coming on the show. You are so welcome. It was a lot of fun. All right. Lauren Weedman, who was in here recently to discuss her book, Misfortune, has come back to recommend a book she has written. Did I say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> a book she is reading or read. Lauren, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. What book? Well, okay, this is a book that I recommend. I send it to people, even though I've not read it fully. It's called The Gift, and it's uh, by Lewis Hyde. Yeah. And it's The Gift, Creativity and the Artist in the Modern World. And I I came across it because of my favorite website, which was Brain Pickings, right? I just love that website. She recommended the woman who runs it. The Gift is all basically about how being an artist is... Talk about the commodity, how we've turned it into a commodity. She's analyzing it through... A, have you read it? Yeah. Right. So she's yeah. like going way back, you know, looking at like gifts in, you know, prehistoric times. or Like what it meant to give of something. And living in L.A. and having had... Uh, work that's been made, you know, had I've had money made off of my work. It's amazing how that gets in the way of sitting down to work because I'll sometimes jump in my head when I sit down to think, oh, well, this will, like, I can't wait to sell this for, oh, I can see this as a, which is an mm -hmm. awful way to be creating. It's not a creative way um, at all. Mm -hmm. So this book to me has been a, um, I don't know. It's been, a, it's been a big. Very. It's been very inspiring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a, there was a there was a period in uh, in the eighties when somebody said it it is now the most read book in academia. No way. Oh, that one is. The, the, yeah, oh, I thought thinking. I discovered it. Um, and and but I but people don't talk about it as much anymore. I think it's a, I think it was a, a very important book for a lot of people. Yeah, I, it's it was pretty life changing for me the time that I came across it. It was a couple of years ago, and it really was just all about getting down to what it's really about, why you do what you do, and that it shouldn't, and the idea that you would be creating something not immediately thinking, what am I going to get from it? Um, which I still can't quite wrap my head around, but I like the idea. What a remarkable and, concept in Los Angeles. Yeah, and doesn't, right? doesn't the book also talk about these kind of perversions of gift, of, of gift giving, like a uh, potlatch? Right. Right, where right. the... What's the potlatch again? Potlatch, I said, right. is, I'm like, potlatch right. is this uh, kind of north, north, uh, northwest Indian um, thing where you give gifts as a way to shame people. So you, you right. give, <laughs> give people a lot of blankets and, and and a lot of oil, and you pour it on the fire, and they're sweating, and you put more blankets on them and pretend that you're giving them gifts. Yes, um, right? yes I have a friend who does that. That's right. So remember <laughs> psychologically, it, yeah, she'd, she'd give me things so that it, it was almost like a, a, a aggressive thing to do because she'd given so much to me, and it was like mm -hmm. a weird controlling thing. Yeah. Like, and the other thing of, of giving to somebody and immediately thinking, well, they better give me something back of equal value. <laughs> like, it better not be, like, underneath. It better be the exact same thing. It's all this tied in, like, if you... Yeah, that's 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 a major part of the book at the very beginning. Yeah. That's mm. awesome. But, like, when you're going to a wedding... And you think, well, what are they paying? Like, what? how much per person are they paying for catering? And so we're going to multiply that by two, and that's what we'll spend on the present. Right, right? I know. I mean, but that's what we do. Wait, people do that? Yeah. <laughs> that's why you're never invited anywhere. All right, the book is The Gift, Creativity and the Artists in the Modern World. Lauren Weedman, author of Misfortune. Thanks for coming back to the show. 
I'm so glad you were open to me coming back again. Do come back once more. I'll be. Back. I'm going to close the door. I'd love to see you in. again. But wear something different. I have to. I know it's embarrassing. Thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience. Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Thanks to our czar of scheduling, Ashley Bean. Thanks to our intern, Marie-Alexa Cavanaugh. Thanks to associate producer, Jim Lane. Thanks to Lauren Weedman and Julia Claiborne-Johnson. And thanks to Emerson College for letting us use their beautiful studios. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 